0: This episode is sponsored by Circle and Near.
1: Money is changing. So where do we go from here? Through high-profile interviews and thought-provoking analysis, join Michael Casey and Sheila Warren for the Money Reimagined podcast as they explore the connection between finance, human culture, and our increasingly digital lives. And just a reminder, Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. And now... Here's Michael Casey.
2: Hello and welcome to Money Reimagined, I'm Michael Casey. Today I'm coming to you solo, Sheila is otherwise occupied, and will be back with us next week. For today's episode, I've decided to do a bit of a rerun of a conversation I thoroughly enjoyed having with the journalist, author, and activist, Brett Scott, at the Neocon conference in Lisbon last month. Brett's book, Cloud Money, Cash, Cards, Crypto, and The War for Our Wallets, is a no-holds-barred look at the less-than-holy motives that drive many actors in the so-called fintech space. It's fair to say that Brett is not exactly a crypto fanatic. That's not to say he's always a critic, though. What he is is a voice for the human beings worldwide who are being swept up into this movement to redesign money. In some respects, cloud money is a homage to the value of cash, banknotes, and coins. For the anonymity that it affords people, and for what Brett describes as the kind of subversive capacity to reject surveillance and control by governments and bankers. Fair enough, but in a global economy that is digital and global, how do we give people inclusion and agency if not through either a bank account or a digital money solution like Bitcoin? That's part of the tension that Brett and I explored in Lisbon, and which I hope we can dig even more deeply into today. So let's bring him in. Hi there, Brett. Hey, Michael. Great to be here. So how's the book tour going? You're, uh, you're in Italy at the moment.
1: Yeah, this is week four of the book tour. And uh, I got to say, I'm looking forward to being home. I was, yeah, I was in uh, Vienna, Lisbon, where I saw you. Then I jumped to Spain, and then Berlin, and then Spain again, and then Netherlands, and then Italy. So <laughs> it's interesting.
2: Yeah, but for folks sitting behind a cubicle somewhere, that sounds like a fairly exotic, uh, fun trip
1: sounds very uh, glorious from the outside but the reality is i'm just traipsing through you know airports and train yeah. stations and hotels the most interesting thing though is seeing that you know the different when you go to different countries to speak to people about these issues around monetary systems there's always these kind of local factors that sort of change the story so i was just in netherlands for example mm. where it's very very digitized you know and then i come yeah. to italy and then suddenly the story is very different And you see all these different cultural takes on money and stuff so that's always interesting
2: interesting time to be having local conversations about money, right? I mean, we're really seeing a lot of stress and tension in the global financial system with the dollar inevitably doing what it always does when the Fed goes on these big interest rate hikes, soaring, and obviously, by default, lots of other currencies are falling. So, you know, I don't know. In Europe, it'd be interesting to see. Is there any fear? And we've got I've just had a, a new rather you know, far-right-wing uh, prime minister in elected mm. in the country that you're in, which I, I'm sure is, as always, connected to economic tensions. And the last time we went this go around in Italy, it was during the euro crisis of the post-financial crisis period. The euro has been hit hard, not at, nearly as bad as the pound, obviously, but these things do create tensions. And there's the, yeah, of the tensions in Europe absolutely. that are a big part of this.
1: Yeah, it's always hard to map out the exact relationships. I mean, the global economy is like a complex system you know that which has all types of interdependent variables that are kind of you know working off each other and you never quite know where different tensions are emerging from but for example in italy right here one of the talking points of the far right which is rising in power is around actual government surveillance and this is this is a a point that's going around the world actually and one of the things that i've been saying is that actually a lot of these technologies that Governments are starting to think about using actually come from the private sector, they come from Silicon Valley, all right, all this type of these digital technologies, for many decades have been pushed by these private sector actors, but now that states are starting to delve into using these or think about using them or kind of going along with that digital transformation narrative suddenly there's a lot of this concern among people um, and rightful concern. But, you know, what, what I've often been saying is, you know, we should be focusing equal amounts yeah. of concern on, on the non-state actors. Right? Yeah, well, which
2: is where I think, you know, you you do align um, on some level, at least with the, certainly the mindset of, of a lot of crypto people, right? I mean, I, mean, I um, was very moved by um, Susanna Zuboff's book, um, Surveillance Capitalism, um which just really underscored to me that in many respects we're already living in the matrix you know the the power yeah. of the algorithm that, that google runs that that facebook has that all these internet platforms have uh in really dictating human behavior right i mean they 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 figured out not just how to measure what we do but to then create scenarios that dictate what we do or drive yeah what yeah we do. i would
1: actually add another word to uh, Shoshana's term i'd say Maybe may be like infrastructural surveillance cap, right? Wow, I mean, what's that's even scarier.
2: Yeah,
1: what's <laughs> happening, you know, you know, when you describe an infrastructure, infrastructure is the baseline stuff in a society you require to interact with other people. You know, mm-hmm. it's the kind of like the non-optional aspect of the market, right? And so, and what's, I guess, what's been the real scary facet of, our, of what's happening in our global economy is increasingly you cannot interact with other people unless you interact with these, in, these institutions which form the infrastructure, right? which is quite different. If, if you think about it, like in the 1950s and so on, you have these big corporates like Ford and so on. You know, and once you buy the car, you're kind of out of their, their reach. Right? So they're still powerful. Yeah. But now we have these, these institutions, these organizations, where you literally have to constantly interact right. with them in order to attract yeah. other people. And that's what's becoming very, very scary.
2: Yeah, lots of famous stories about the uh, farmers that own the John Deere tractors who suddenly just go, when it shuts down, they're not allowed to fix it themselves. They've got to go through some... So it's this
1: permanent connection to these types of like
2: massive entities. And that gets down to IP and a bunch of other. So there's a whole, this this conversation could go down that path. Let's let's stop that for the moment (laughs) because I I can feel it like, you know, I think we do this, we've done this in the past. We start get talking and go somewhere. Let's pull it back and where we were just a moment ago. And that is like in the midst of this highly tense environment, lots of financial disruption, what has been the feedback to your message? Well, first of all, before we do that, let's just get the message. What is the, the big story that you're telling, whether it's about cash or, or the sort of this, this sort of fintech moment?
1: Yeah, basically, the book is looking at the fusion of big tech and big finance. So it's looking at how, if you zoom out and look at the, the big picture of what's happening in the global economy, uh, you're basically seeing the rise of big tech. I mean, 10 years ago, The biggest companies were finance companies and oil companies. Now it's all tech companies, right? So we've seen this this massive rise of of these these tech firms. But those tech firms basically can't operate unless they're fused into huge transnational digital finance infrastructures. Now, there was a story about 2008, which was all about fintech, was about democratization and it's going to revolutionize everything. But really, when you kind of cut through that marketing pitch of fintech, What it's really been about is automating the financial sector, right? automating the existing financial sector, which in turn makes it much easier for big tech to then interface into the financial sector. And so what we're seeing now is all these kinds of like fusion between these players, Um, and that's creating a whole bunch of problems. Now, what I'm arguing in terms of the monetary system in the book is that we need to maintain a balance of power in the monetary system. And to this end, I'm advocating that we protect the cash system. So this is the physical money system, which for a very long time has been demonized by many different types of corporates, from the banking sector through to the payments companies like Visa and MasterCard, through to all the fintech startups who basically can't operate with cash, through to big tech itself, who hates the cash system because you can't automate it. All right. So the ideological story we have in society is that somehow cash is a thing of the past. It's the kind of horse cart of payments that needs to be replaced and so on. What I'm arguing is that actually cash is far more like the public bicycle system of payments. The digital payment system, if you want to use this transport metaphor, is much like the private Uber of payments. And by this, I mean your cards and apps and things. Mm-hmm. And you know, even if you might enjoy those sort of private appified digital experiences, it doesn't mean you want them to dominate, you know, so I'm using this sort of transport metaphor quite a lot to say, you know, in our transport systems, we maintain a balance of power, we'll have bicycle lanes and different types of transport. And you need a similar thing in the monetary system, you need to maintain this balance between public money in the form of physical cash and private money in the form of these, these, um, you know, bank account systems and so on. And so that's the big argument. So I'm not arguing that everybody should be using cash all the time or something like mm. that. I'm saying you got to prevent the complete Preserve takeover.
2: It. It's like I'm in favor of gun rules, but I, I appreciate the argument that you know if you really have this tool, that you know if you really believe that the way you're actually going to protect your worth, I don't think you have much chance against a, a national army, to that matter. But a gun, right? There's a similar idea. It's not not that yeah, I knew yeah. this thing for. Uh, my everyday use, but it's this sort of outlet I have to sort of protect myself, right? Lots of other things I think, you know, that you could say, I keep this in reserve to maintain my autonomy in some way. Yeah.
1: And also one of the big arguments about these types of systems is that they prevent the worst excesses of the dominant system. Right. And if you want to see the worst excesses of the digital system emerge, get rid of the cash system. Because right now it prevents some of those worst excesses. A very good example of this in places like Hong Kong during the protests over there, you'd see queues of people lining up at the train station to buy physical tickets with cash. People who ordinarily might've been using these apps, right? Because they realize in this situation, I don't want to authorities be watching where I'm traveling to by watching my digital payments trails, right? Mm. Now in the absence of of that option, of course, suddenly now that real negative potential emerges, so yeah. the big, the big part of keeping these reserve systems is precisely that you you want to prevent the the excesses, and this is a balance of power argument you find in many types of things from the political system through to you know any kind of system has this this tendency.
2: Yeah, I remember the lines of uh, Hong Kong students during the middle of those big protests in, in Hong Kong when they were they were stopping using the the Oyster Card, right, that in in Hong Kong because they could see that they could be tracked uh, through yeah, the yeah. subway system, and they were just buying the old the old tokens to. Exactly, with cash. Yeah. so what's been the reception to the book then i mean what are, are people you know is it resonating at this moment
1: yeah and it's, it's quite interesting you know in some countries like the uk there's been this rapid acceleration of digital payments to the point where many people in places like london have almost lost the political will they, they almost don't believe that they can escape from that system now so there's quite like a high level of apathy in some places like the UK, especially among your kind of uh, middle-class, upper-middle-class populations, you basically believe it's futile to try to escape from dependence upon big tech and big finance. All right. Whereas you go to some other countries, you know, like Spain and uh, Italy, you find quite high levels of agreement that it's important to keep this degree of autonomy. And so it really depends on uh, where you are. But many people are, are starting to understand, or, or at least have the intuition that there is something wrong about becoming totally absorbed by corporate systems. So I think my my argument is being well-received, especially in the way I'm sort of reframing cash as being Mm. this necessary counterweight to the digital system. Because what most people are used to hearing is the sort of typical narrative, which is, oh, cash is a redundant, old, inefficient, dangerous form and it needs to be quote unquote upgraded to digital money. All right, mm-hmm. this is the very typical way people approach this question. And when you say actually, it's not something that's being upgraded. It's something there's, there's a type of an enclosure going on, and the fight to protect cash is a fight to s- prevent this enclosure from happening. When when people realize that they sort of clock, and, and I've had quite a lot of people say, oh, actually I am going to start using a lot more cash now. I'm going to you know join this effort to try and actually preserve this alternative system. And of course, the crypto community has a kind of complex relationship to this argument, mm-hmm. because the crypto community for a long time has perceived itself as building these alternative forms of digital cash. Mm-hmm. And so ideologically, there is a fair amount of agreement in the crypto community that it's a problem to become totally dependent upon the sort of mainstream digital systems. The main conflict I have with the crypto community, though, tends to be I'll always have people saying to me, oh, well, don't worry about physical cash. Bitcoin solves this this problem, all right? Mm. And at that point, I'd be like, oh, it actually doesn't solve this problem. And it's sort of-
2: well, well, I mean, you'd probably get a lot of folks say, well, it's certainly as currently designed, it doesn't, or without the presence of, um, you know, alternative privacy preserving opportunities, it doesn't, right? It's it's there. I think there's a lot of folks in the Bitcoin community who say it was actually one of the failures of Bitcoin to have not built a a more robust Privacy-preserving element to it. To that kind of counterpoint, what do you say? Because, right, obviously, the, with the you know a big story in the crypto community, you know, has been the inclusion of Tornado Cash, a mixing service, on, on the uh, Office of Foreign Asset Controls um, sanctions list, and and that's really you know creating some real problems for the Ethereum community, especially. And may, and this is where I'd like your perspective. May suggest that you're right that. It's actually impossible, <laughs> not, not because the technology is not really powerful, right? Cryptography can, through zero-knowledge proofs and a whole host of other methods, really obscure transaction histories to the point that it effectively becomes cash. The real issue is the entry and exit points from the real world that we live in that has governments and banks and others sitting on the ends of them. I suppose what I'd really like to do with this is to say, look, there's a view that says, you're right, Brett. We have this surveillance problem and cash is a wonderful alternative, but we're living in a rapidly digitizing world. I mean, it's just impossible to stop. So how do we build systems that can protect people within that world, in addition to maybe having cash as an outlet? And how do we do so when these institutions are essentially stopping us from <laughs> creating the right you know, protecting uh, technologies that, that we, we have the power to do?
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, I definitely see the broader crypto world, which, you know, includes, you know, many different types of uh, players as an element of creating this balance of power. I mean, I have a long history in the Bitcoin community. I've used Bitcoin a lot and so on from the very early days. Right. So I have personal experience of how you can use the system to bypass traditional institutions and so on. So I'm not rejecting this element of the argument. I definitely see crypto, the crypto world, as an element of creating counterpower to the dominant digital system. What I would say though is I reject the idea that it's impossible to stop sort of the takeover of the digital. I would argue that part of the the broadest ideology we live under across nations across the world, all right, regardless of where you are, the broadest ideology comes from the corporate sector, right, which basically, especially the digital corporate sector, which says. What human progress is, is a situation where you enter ever increasing scale, speed, automation and complexity. And this is a sort of overarching ideology that many people work under, including politicians when they're constantly talking about their need to sort of catch up and keep up and so on. There's this whole idea that you're kind of running this race against everyone constantly. And basically what's happening if you zoom out is that corporations are automating and scaling, right? And you kind of have this like war going on in this, this situation. But that doesn't mean that it's inevitable that those systems are stable or take over. It's an ideology. In reality, large-scale complex digital systems are very vulnerable and they break down, right? Which is why actually, you know, despite all this digital rhetoric, we have many physical systems that remain. For example, the postal service is stronger than it's ever been before, right? Mm. Despite all the rhetoric of things like email that this will be destroyed, you know? And this is why I use the bicycle metaphor as well, you know? Uber is powerful, but the bicycle movement is more powerful than it's ever been before as well. So I don't think it's inevitable that you have these digital takeovers. And I think it's quite similar with the cash system. It's true right now, the ideological tide has turned against the cash system, largely because it acts against the interests of the digital corporate sector. But that doesn't mean you can't create a counter movement saying we can bring this back. But what I, I would finally say is that one of the reasons why crypto is so enticing to many people is precisely that it actually goes along with the narrative that digitization is inevitable, right? That's the predominant cultural story we have right now in society. So in a mm. way, it's easier for somebody to imagine that the future will be characterized by these you know, digital tokens and on decentralized ledgers than it is for them to imagine that you could keep a physical form, all right? So there's an interesting dynamic going on there. And the question comes when you're designing strategy is, do you totally let go of this fight to protect the physical? Or do you throw your lot in with this like inevitability story and say, it's inevitable. Therefore, let's try to build these alternative digital systems. And for me, I'm saying is like, let's not throw that. Let's not throw the the towel in yet. All right. I'm
2: glad you sort of, yet and like there's like caveats here right because you and I are connecting over zoom while well, you're in italy right now and as much as the quality of my audio is not what we wanted it to be because my i couldn't get my mic to get fixed and so apologies to to listeners who are hearing my voice not nearly as clearly as as Brett's right now we're using these digital technologies and it's making our lives possible is it making it better is an interesting question right i mean you know, maybe in a different world, I would have just waited six months until you and I were back together again and we'd had had something in a much more analog environment. And that might have been even more enjoyable because we'd be sitting, you know, sharing a glass of an Italian Chianti while we did this or something, right? The the fact is we're all tied in, you know, and I I suppose this is where I I agree with you entirely. There's a there's a story, there's a narrative, there's an ideology, and it is a huge part of how change happens. And it's interesting, I think, the fact the fact that you say that the UK is very different from, from Europe, or at least somewhat different from Europe, because I think that there's cultural differences in the way that stories get absorbed and told that are huge factors in that. And I recognize that very, very big distinction between the continent and the UK and, of course, the US. If I think about AI, or let's go back before AI, let's start with Moore's law and, and then and move to Metcalfe's law. And then they, you're probably going to tell me this is still just a story, but. There is this process, and now that we've arrived in a world of AI, and, and you've probably seen, uh, those of us in the, you know, you're a journalist, you've seen GPT-2, GPT-3, GPT-4 coming, this incredibly powerful AI that just seems to be feeding on itself. It is machine learning upon yeah, machine sure. learning upon machine learning, and, and that's where this sort of these dystopian visions, of course, emerged from as yeah. well.
1: What I'm arguing against here, okay, it's more than a story. Okay, we have an ideology, but the, the thing that gives rise to that ideology is the fact that we're not really in control of our systems, right? So if you hear the how the tech sector speak, it always will say, you know, use this term we, you know, we want ever more convenience, we want ever more whatever, right? Truth is, human beings don't need that much stuff. Human beings can be happy by a campfire, you know, like playing guitar and drinking whiskey and talking about life, you know, you can be very happy doing quite simple stuff. But in reality, the situation we're in in the global economy is that we become stuck. All right. We're in a kind of a state of inertia. Like, there's endless technological development, not because anybody has a kind of inner desire constantly to be, have ever more technology. It's because our economy kind of falls apart if we don't do that. So in a way, it's like being caught in a treadmill that you can't push the off switch on. Now, in that context, you have to develop ideologies that say this is a good thing, right? Because you have to keep yourself going. You have to say, oh, it's great that we're constantly having to race against each other. We're constantly having to keep up and adapt and change. And if you don't, you're going to be left behind and dumped on the ground. All right. That's the predominant ideology that every politician and every kind of innovation leader has to constantly talk about. Okay. Now, if you kind of accept that, you can kind of, I guess, in a way, see the situation more clearly. It's true. Fine. All these technologies are proliferating and so on. It doesn't mean it makes human beings happy. What it really does is it makes us ever more dependent. And then you can kind of put a positive spin on that if you want. But it doesn't really have that much to do with us often. Okay? And so I think that's what I'm often cutting against. I'm not saying, hey, you know, this is just in our heads or something. It's, We're stuck in these huge systems. And in a way, the big call is we have to kind of actually get together to create forms of counterpower such that those systems don't totally swallow us. You know, I'm not saying we can reverse this. I'm saying we need to maintain outposts against it.
0: Join us for Converge 22, Circle's first annual conference on the blockchain driven future of money coming this September to San Francisco. Converge 22 is a gathering for what's next in Web3, featuring demos and developer workshops, plus guest speakers like our very own Money Reimagined co-host Sheila Warren, Aave's Stanikulikov, Compound's Robert Leshner, and Solana's Anatoly Yakovenko. Money Reimagined listeners get a special discount with the code COINDESK. Register today at converge.circle.com. Near is a revolutionary, yet simple, Web3 platform for building decentralized apps. Designed by developers for developers, over 700 projects are now building on Near's fast, secure, and scalable protocol. Whether you're a crypto native launching DeFi apps, NFT marketplaces, and play-to-earn games, or looking to migrate your project from Web2, NEAR makes it easy to build Web3 for the masses. NEAR offers developers a variety of tools, resources, and support for building apps, empowering communities, and creating a more fair, inclusive, and equitable future. Start your Web3 developer journey now by visiting NEAR at near.org. That's N-E-A-R dot org.
2: You know, I think that's really... Compelling. And I think it, it's going to be very interesting to see as we move into the an even greater surveillance environment and where AI is more predominant, whether or not these movements will look back at you, Brett, as, as the leader of that movement here, certainly in the monetary world of folks trying to find these exit points. But I, I still I still struggle with it, right? Because my whole life has, in some respects, been defined by this digital transformation. You know, I I've written books about it, you know most of them in a positive light, although I've really embraced this concern about surveillance. But I would think more even personally, right? And and you again embody this. We're both expats. We live in other parts of the world. Our connections to that outside world. I remember when I was sending letters to my then girlfriend now wife. She's American. I was I was just Australian living in Australia. And we'd wait at each other's calls and we'd occasionally call each other once uh, a week and pay thirty dollars to do so for this phone call. Now with my, my father ailing, I'm able to, to talk absolutely for as long as I want with him at any given time, just sort of like to be there with him, even though I'm disconnected. I just, I wonder whether or not in some respects, the only way to really go back or to bring back this sort of this local power element, this local connectivity, the physical that you're coming back to is to reverse globalization, right? I mean, or are you talking about like a, a stopping point, like bringing back well, some parts well, of it? Well,
1: bear in mind that globalization's already being reversed right now with the rise of the far-right. Well, that's,
2: the, that's a political version of globalization, right? I mean, and, and yes, that's another issue altogether, and I don't think that's a, necessarily a good thing.
1: Think about this. In the 1990s or early 2000s, there was all the anti-globalization movements, right? And those were actually very left-wing movements. Like mm-hmm. With The anti-WTO, anti-World Economic Forum, these yeah. were very left-based movements, right? Now, if you look at what's happening and all the rise of these like, nationalist governments like Viktor Orbán's thing in Hungary and here in Italy, yeah. there's a big narrative about the globalist elites. Yeah, absolutely. Right?
2: Yeah. And yeah. all
1: these like, looming panopticon types of things, which is another version of the sort of anti-globalization thing, just told from a slightly different political angle. And I think those messages are able to find lots of people because actually many people at some intuitive level feel a sense of helplessness right. at this imagined inevitable transformation and often seeking to reclaim. You know, I was in Italy here, Maloney, who's the, the incoming yeah. prime minister. I mean, she gave this speech, which is which all about like reclaiming Christian identity and reclaiming the family and all these kind of things, right? Which is a socially conservative spin on a attempt to kind of like reground somebody yeah. in the face of a large scale system that they feel alienated by, right? And so this, I think it's actually, I mean, I don't know, maybe I'm reading too much into this, but I think many people at some level feel like there's something, uh, they, they want to have more control in a world that, doesn't, that feels outside of their control, you know? Right. And so I think, you know, I, I wouldn't bet that we don't see these types of reversals.
2: I wouldn't either. I, I suppose I'm just trying to think about what the fallout from that is and like we've seen waves like this happen in the past and they've led to essentially violence and war right course, so, yeah, so yeah. this is the thing that i find most disturbing but i know that's not what you're advocating um, no, no, i'm just that,
1: saying these these are i think right. it's inevitable that you have these different types of movements that yeah. emerge from the sort of overarching feeling that you have no control over the global economy
2: what's really important in your message then is to think through okay if you're a a liberal elite and you really don't want war which you know presumably you don't how do we pull back on this this ideological drive and create these outlets such as cash and others that actually yeah. give empower at the local level to essentially Stand as a bulwark against the sort of the worst parts of the backlash, right? Like you want to empower. Yeah, yeah, sure. You want to I empower mean- the local level without empowering the fascist, right? I think that that to me is Yeah, I mean, that's is, sort
1: of the big the big political challenge. So, so
2: let, let's bring this to then another part of a conversation you and I have been having, and it actually feeds off a column that I wrote last week. I attended this conference in San Francisco. The Converge conference with Circle, and Circle, of course, are the company that have produced, I think. It's not the biggest yet, but it certainly is, I think, the most dynamic and important stablecoin out there, the USDC. And what struck me when I was there was that there was all these developers who would turned up who were building things on top of USDC. The question was why, right? USDC is not a smart contract platform like Ethereum. It's not something that's designed necessary to have all these dApps built on top of it. But what they were doing was plugging into the USDC API and building payment systems and other ways to integrate this in. And why? Because it is the dollar, right? Because it is a proxy for the dollar. And therefore, it is, at this stage, the probably the most dynamic form of programmable money in that fiat sense that we've yet seen. And we're seeing it go around the world. We're seeing USDC pick up in Brazil, in Argentina. And it's seen as a liberating thing in some respects, right? Certainly in Argentina, where I spent a long time of my life, eight, six years it seemed very long. Um, there was a, a real and, and a positive sense. I loved Argentina. There's this sense that this is liberating because you don't have to be tied to this constantly deprecated local currency, the peso. The dollar is the thing that enables you to free from that. It's moving money across borders. It's doing all these wonderful things, but if you sort of stretch the imagination out a bit further, and if this succeeds, it's hyperdollarization. It is the idea that this stuff now smoothly moves into these places. And that brings up another issue, right? It's, it's not just the surveillance. In this case, it's possibly the surveillance of however it's designed, the US system, but it's really also about a loss of, of sovereignty yeah, of course,
1: and, yeah. And so
2: maybe like what do you what are your thoughts about all of that
1: well uh, again you know, i mean over, you know i've spent a long time in these different types of you know, these communities around alternative money and stuff so i've often seen a lot of naivety among i'd say the sort of the, the techy parts of the kind of crypto world where they are fascinated by the technology but don't really think about the ground level politics of what it actually means for somebody. So I, my family is from Zimbabwe. I constantly hear people using Zimbabwe as their case study for why it'll be great to have this like, digital dollar and stuff. And the reality is, it's like, okay, fine. You know, I understand that my family in Zimbabwe right now, fine, they use physical US dollars for exchange in the country because the country dollarized, right? And if there's gonna be a digital form of dollar, it's gonna make it much easier now for all people across the world, such as my Zimbabwean family, to suddenly start using, you know, USDC wallets to transfer among themselves when they're doing stuff, right? Now that sort of superficially looks like it's empowering, but again, like with many of these technological systems, you're gaining something at the expense of losing some kind of autonomy. Many people who who have sort of romanticization of tech will often only look at one side and not look at that loss of autonomy, all right? So what's what's basically happening is that you're now becoming dependent upon the US dollar system and with all the US dollar institutions, the banking sector, the Federal Reserve. If you're actually sort of thinking long-term as a strategist in Zimbabwe or in any of these countries, that's not an ideal situation for you. What you really want is to rebuild your local institutions, all right? This is the big debate that goes on with the Eurozone in europe basically you had this sort of meta system that's built offers certain benefits but it also comes at a cost right you lose autonomy uh, as a country and if you're on the wrong side of that that system you can be shafted which mm-hmm. leads to all these kind of calls to break away from the euro. Oh,
2: brexit and you know the far exactly. right in Italy and, and everything else right exactly and you,
1: you can't really stop human beings from having this intuition so you might have this like you know, utopian impulse that oh, well, if only everybody was just using one giant like system across the world, and it was like, it's like fine, you can imagine that, but in reality, human beings live on in in physical space, in actual different territories, and they make political demands in those territories. And if it suddenly turns out that actually you're losing autonomy by suddenly having to use USDC, you know, run by a, a you know Jeremy and, a, and you know, his his board of directors and stuff and particular place in the world, you might say, actually, screw that, we're going to break away from that again, you know, so, so I think um, it's a bit naive to imagine that these things are necessarily empowering. But of course, it's becoming a real concern among many countries that the US dollar can start to creep into their own economies now, right? All right? Because previously, that was hard. Previously, your citizens would have required a bank account in the US to be able to be doing US dollar transfers with each other. But if you can suddenly now download an app of like the Google Play Store and suddenly have this ability to accept, uh, you know, get like US dollar transfers in the form of a stable coin, this could have real implications for your own, you can start to lose control of your own national economy. All right. And it might be the case that like an American libertarian says, oh, this is great, you know, choice and freedom. But in reality, for people in that country, it might actually be like, a Reduction of your ability to have any sovereignty in your own territory.
2: Yeah. I mean, I, again, I, keep, I always come back to Argentina, right? The, the reason why they went into crisis in 2001 was because they had pegged the peso to the dollar, it was essentially the same thing. And they were then completely out of sync with the economic circumstances in their country. Brazil had heavily devalued beforehand and they were now being outcompeted. Essentially, the Fed was setting interest rates for Argentina. And Argentina, at that stage of its economic cycle, really needed a much easier monetary uh, policy. It needed a weaker currency to be able to compete, and it couldn't. And it basically yeah. got forced into a deflationary spiral. Right. So you have these, and that, and that, in some specs is a larger national expression of what you're talking about, which is the disconnect between the local and the external. I mean, I wouldn't yeah, even say yeah, the local yeah. and the global. Let's say it's the local in the U.S. Right. And so. I suppose, though, like, again, just to push back on your, like, okay, cash is the answer. And I, don't, I know you're not just saying that. <laughs> you're saying other things as well. But like, just to, like, to, to, to go with this, what I see as as something that's, whether inevitable or not, is very, very hard to stop. And that is this digitization. Is there another way then to sort of within the context of this digital money environment to create these local protections of sovereignty and of autonomy? And I just wonder whether it's not even um, national digital currencies. It is some form of uh, local representations of value, right? I think one of the one of the most interesting things that could be almost diametrically opposed to the back to cash movement is that we really radically reform money itself and get away from the idea of there being a, a, a national fiat currency. Um, and I'm not even saying that that's Bitcoin. I'm actually saying that you may have something that's completely fragmented, and that that money becomes less of a token that is has its own value, and rather a protocol that enables exchanges of of digital representations of real value. And, and the sort of almost like a digital barter world could possibly come out of this. Um, you know, that's a little bit pie in the sky to some people, but. Well I mean we, we do have these the capacity with these automatic atomic swaps and various other mechanisms to create these these exchanges and that would be a very different vision to hyperdollarization. Yeah, I look
1: I mean I've been involved in many alternative currency movements prior to the crypto world. One thing I would say though in terms of say decentralization is that you know there, there was an older meaning of decentralization that preceded the crypto world. Decentralization used to mean you take one big system and you break it up into small parts that become controlled locally. All right. That was the original version of decentralization. And you find that intuition, for example, in anarchist communities who would say, hey, we're going to break away from a commune. We're going to form our own small scale economy, our little permaculture you know, colony here or whatever. There's people who have this idea of breaking away from the main system and creating a sort of small a much smaller system that sort of interfaces to some extent with the main system. And in in like anarchist philosophy, you'll get like federated anarchy, the sort of idea that you have all these small little systems that can then maybe link up to deal with broader scale processes if necessary. What was categorically different about the crypto movement, especially with Bitcoin, is that she had a totally different idea of decentralization, which was to say, rather than breaking up a large scale system into small systems, You just uh, make a large-scale system that nobody controls, all right? Right. That's the crypto version of decentralization, a huge-scale global system where nobody Mm. theoretically is in control, okay? Now, the problem for human beings is that even though that might sort of superficially sound slightly better than, you know, a large-scale system controlled by, like, political groups, it doesn't really allow very much actual like local like variation like if i'm using bitcoin in a country i have no i have no control whatsoever over its price and so on right i'm basically reliant upon international speculative markets that are beyond my control um, so i could be trying to use it for example in let's say in argentina and like random fluctuations in the speculative price determined like in america or something are suddenly affecting my ability to exchange right so the intuition that then comes in sort of the sort of next wave of crypto is, in can you maybe kind of like bring more of that sort of anarchist intuition to say, let's make these smaller scale systems that we can have more local autonomy over? And, you know, I think there are lots of interesting experiments like that going on in the crypto world, with, you know, even like platforms like Cosmos and stuff.
2: It's a way of seeing the world that's quite different from what we have. And it- it doesn't all hew to that model. There are all sorts sure. of people thinking about, and, and I think what's been very interesting about Bitcoin is, regardless of it fitting the description you just, just gave, it allowed people to imagine things differently. And as a result, you're seeing a lot of these movements. And yeah, I yeah. think there's a conversation about what do we mean by decentralization in this sense. And, and it, yeah, I mean, people look at the you know Ethereum uh, virtual machine and just say, you know, this is a monolith. This is this is a leviathan, right? It's yeah, it's, exactly. it's it happens to be. Uh, run by a separate uh, bunch of independent nodes. Yeah, yeah. But it has it. it and in, by the way, it's extremely inefficient to have massive computation on this scale. Yeah, Just exactly. One of
1: one of my earliest articles on on the, the the blockchain world was called "Visions of a Techno Leviathan." That came out right. in twenty fifteen, which was precisely this idea of this like non human Leviathan that right. would intermediate inter- inter- between people. Well, and actually- the scripture world
2: talks about as being faith in math, right? But in some respects, it's like, it's not. It's faith in an algorithm that, that is, has been designed by somebody initially and it might've evolved <laughs> over time, but it's there's still this machine. It's, it's
1: kind of like faith in a lack of coordination capacity. It's like, as long as nobody can coordinate to overcome the protocol, it's gonna like run in this kind of like way, right? Like it's gonna, it's gonna do what it's supposed to do. So you've got to basically prevent people from coordinating to uh, over, 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 um, power the, the well, it, consensus, it, it, it,
2: right? It thrives off of a cynical view that, um, or a, you know, a pessimistic view, which, you know, human beings are pretty good at, at confirming. And that is that we are not very good at coordinating, right? That they were inherently selfish and that, that, that we need something to protect against yeah. the design of the Westminster system, the, the US Constitution, all these things. We're also recognizing that, right? That we can't just assume that good people will, will emerge and that we need to protect ourselves against that. But I think what's interesting about your vision is that it sort of wants that capacity to create governing systems that protect against the abuses of power um, and the failure of coordination to be designed at the local level rather than sort of in this well, bigger thing. You well, know, I
1: think what's important if you're doing any kind of currency design stuff is to think of these trade-offs and contradictions. You know, it's like the basic point about currency networks is that the smaller they are, the less you can get, you know, the larger they are, the more you can get, but the less control you have. Okay, so so you have these kind of like trade-offs, you know, I can, you know, me and 150 other people can form a little currency network between ourselves by setting up a ledger where we record obligations to each other, that's like a mutual credit system. Mm -hmm. You know, mutual credit is one of the oldest forms of alternative currency, right? Basically, all you need is like a spreadsheet where you can record people going in and out of debt to each other. But of course, if you have a network of 150 people, there's not very much labor there. You can't actually, 150 people can't actually do that much. So that's going to be quite constrained. Whereas of course, if you're now in the Eurozone system and suddenly you have a, oh yeah, the US dollar system and your unit enables you to access 300 million other people. Well, of course, suddenly you have access to like things that are far more advanced. And especially with the global payment system, the reason why we even have this technology and these phones is that we have these giant pools of labor across the world that are connected together via the international payment systems, right? So if you want high-tech stuff that requires very like large transnational coordination, you need these vast-scale currency systems. What then happens is you lose autonomy, right? So I think the whole kind of holy grail of currency design is all around like, can you um, balance or? These different sort of trade-offs to say, mm. okay, we we get more autonomy, we get more localized control without losing access to stuff. You know, if that's what yeah, you're, yeah. if that's what you're interested yeah. in. For me, I come from a kind of um, quite a different monetary paradigm to most people. For example, in the Bitcoin community, I think about money as credit, right? So I, I don't I don't have a sort of fixation upon commodity money like we find in the Bitcoin community. So mo- the things that I find interesting in terms of monetary experimentation are uh, systems that enable people to, say, issue IOUs to each other in order to get goods and services. Right? Mm-hmm. And that, yeah. to me, is the most interesting kind of stuff.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, there is a really interesting breakdown between that, you know, credit, the, the metalist view of money and the the debt view of money. And it's interesting the way the crypto community, I think, tends to skew towards the, the latter, but there are others imagining it differently. And what's great here is like, we're going to have to call it short. I always, I always feel like we could go on forever here. Uh, as I was thinking about how I'd wrap this up, you know, this show is called Money Reimagined, and you know, it was was named that. You know, I think probably more from a a forward looking idea about it going going forwards. And and what you've done here, I think, is really valuable. It's like, okay, yeah, there's different ways to to go through that reimagining process, right? And it might be to go backwards to to older systems and sort of how do we build that into this new model. So it's all part yeah. of the same story, right? It's like we're yeah, facing yeah. a a problem and a challenge and an opportunity and all these things. And so, look, Brett, I I, I love talking to you. I think we, you know, I, we could definitely do this again some other time. But it's yeah. it's a, a rich, you know, eye opening conversation. And I, and I hope that uh, our listeners have, have got something else out of it. I think if you're a really thoughtful person in crypto, you won't just dismiss this as some sort of, uh, you know, like luddite like uh, rejection of what you're doing. And just get to think really hard about the human elements and what we need to actually preserve as a society. That's what I find really compelling about this conversation. And those of us who care about the future of the world and and how we work together as as fellow humans, these are really important questions. So thank you, Brett Scott for for joining us. Congratulations on a wonderful book and good luck with the rest of the tour. Uh, That's all we have time for everybody. Uh, Come back again next week and Sheila will be back with me. Bye for now.
0: You've been listening to Money Reimagined. Today's show has been produced and edited by Michelle Musso. The announcements by Adam B. Levine and our executive producer is Jared Schwartz. Our theme song is by Shepard. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Please reach out to us at podcasts at coindesk.com, subject line, Money Reimagined, or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. And from all of us at Coindesk and the Money Reimagined team, thanks for listening.